Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to have you here at Legacy this morning. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 12. This is going to be a great passage for us today. It's going to answer some really heavy questions, I think. So we're going to kind of turn it inside out and port it and bring it into our lives today. And while you're turning there, part of the reason it's going to be so helpful is because it's going to approach some themes or help us understand some themes a little different. And I don't want to take for granted that everybody just knows what these themes mean, one of them being the fall. We use it all the time. It's a phrase we say all the time, the fall. And if you're watching online or you are here and maybe you're kind of newish to Christianity or you're learning theology and you hear that phrase used a lot, but you're not exactly sure what it means, all the fall is we're referencing the collapse of what was perfect in creation under the weight of the rebellion from Adam and Eve in the garden as they reached for godhood. They wanted to be gods in and of themselves, right? And we're going to get this from Genesis 3. So if you ever want to do any looking into what the fall is, Genesis is going to be the most helpful passage. And I'm going to actually read one verse out of Genesis 3, so stay where you're at in Acts 12. This is Genesis 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And from that point on, the fallout would be unrepairable. Things would be bent and crooked and rotten from the inside out. People would be sick. People would die. Chaos would come. Anger would come, and those things would become normal. Shame would come, and that would be normal until it would be solved, solved in the person of Christ who would come later on. That would be the ultimate answer to this ultimate problem, and that's basically the storyline to your Bible, the Bible that you hold. If you were to, and we've done this before up here, we've said that you could pretty much sum the Bible up in four words, paradise lost and paradise regained. And that bookends the narrative of the story and the goodness of God for all of us. But ever since Genesis 3, you and I and all who have ever existed have wanted to be sovereign gods over our own lives, just like Adam and Eve. We don't want people telling us what to do. We don't want people telling us what to say or how to think. We want to control everything. We want to take what we want to take. We want to decide what is right and what is wrong, right? That's what it means to be sovereign basically describing what it means to be a God. I'm describing sovereignty. Because why serve underneath a sovereign when you yourselves can be sovereign? That's the problem we bump into. And because we all have different personalities, this is going to manifest differently, right? I mean, I'm going to take one example, and you'll all know exactly what I'm saying. Let's pretend it's your birthday party, and everybody sings happy birthday to you. Is that awkward for you? right? What do you do when someone is singing happy birthday to you? Do you sing along? Because that seems a little weird. Do you look at the ground? Do you, do you, what, what do you do? It's one of those songs, it's the longest song in the world if it makes you kind of uncomfortable and cringy to have people sing to you. You're like, is this ever going to end? This song just keeps going on and on. But some of you, you like it, right? You kind of want everyone to sing on pitch. You'd kind of demand it. You'd like to stretch that moment out. The whole birthday thing, whether you love that moment of being celebrated or you hate that moment, would just rather crawl under the table, how much does it hurt when people forget? I mean, let's let's be honest. We take Facebook away, 
without that help to remind you that it's somebody's birthday, you're forgetting everybody's birthday. You don't know anyone's birthday, right? But how does it feel when people forget your birthday? They don't say anything about it. Does it make you feel a little invisible, unseen? The reason it hurts is because there's something inside of us that wants to be visible and wants to be valuable. Those are two things we are going to carry through our whole lives, all of us. We want to be visible and we want to be valuable. See, sovereignty, just like the fall, sovereignty is another theme, I guess, a word that we use a lot, that the Bible kind of addresses and discusses. And all it means is this. It's very simple. It's just God's supremacy and his dominion over all things, over all of creation, over all of history. This means that God isn't passively watching what is happening. He is designing it. He's the architect and the executor of all things, whether it's our hearts, our actions, how the atomic particles spin and do what they do. He decides when things start and when things end. That's what it means to be sovereign. And that's the sovereignty that we want. We want to have that ultimate control, even to the point of competing with God himself. That's actually where sin comes from, too. If you really want to get down the brass tacks, what sin is is our rebellion declaring that we would be a better God than God if God would just get out of the way and let us do what? Do what we want. We want to be supreme. That's basically where it begins. So the big question we're going to carry to this passage and let this passage interpret us, really, is do you really feel valuable and visible? Do you feel valuable? Do you feel visible? Or do you catch yourself reaching for sovereignty, reaching to be supreme, and maybe you don't even know it? Maybe it's something that's just happening and you can't quite catch it. So let's look at this passage in chapter 12. This is going to be the word of the Lord for us as the church is growing and it's expanding. And we've watched it the last 12 chapters as it's reached Jew and Samaritan and Gentiles and it's spreading and it's getting deeper and it's starting to cause a little bit of heat This is where we find ourselves in chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Okay, let's pause for a moment and just discuss who this guy Herod is. Herod is a name we find often in the New Testament, and there's a few of them, and we get them mixed up, right? It's because they're all part of the same dynasty. Herod is a guy that would have loved the red carpet. He loved being showcased and adored. He was actually long before his time because his Instagram account would have been much bigger than yours is. He is the kind of guy that wanted everybody to sing happy birthday to him. He loved it, and that's because he came from a dynasty that was built on self-exaltation. His grandfather is the same Herod in the same dynasty that extinguished all of the Jewish babies because of the prophecy that this man Jesus would come up and challenge his sovereignty. It would be his uncle that would actually mercilessly kill John the Baptist because John the Baptist would chisel away and chip away at his sense of glory. That's where this guy comes from. This is who he learned at the feet of. He would thrive in today's self-preoccupied climate where no one can tell us what to do. And the chief end of man is to be adored, to be visible, and to be valuable. 
I want you to consider the, the red carpet at the Oscars. I know we have red carpet all over the place, right? I mean, every festival has red carpet. It's up and down Air Force One walkway. A- anytime you want to invite royalty or have people that are visible and valuable, there's always red carpet there. But the Oscars is kind of known for it. That's because it has almost 17,000 square feet of red carpet at that event, right? That's enough to carpet a cul-de-sac. That's a lot of red carpet. It actually takes 600 man hours to lay it down. It takes multiple days for them to do it, and it takes just as many days to steam clean it before they even use it. And when they're done, they actually line up 1,500 lights, all aimed at the red carpet so that 55 broadcast level quality cameras can pitch it over 200 countries live, right? This is Herod's kind of party, this whole thing called the Oscars, because it would make one valuable and it will make one visible. And this is a guy that would bend to public opinion as well. What I mean is, is wherever he found himself, he can become valuable and visible even in that room. If he was around the Jews, he'd be mega Jew. He'd be the most Jewish guy in the room. If he was around the Romans, he'd be mega Roman. He'd be the most Roman guy. He was a little bit of a chameleon. So as Paul says, I become all things to all men so that people would adore Jesus. This guy will become all things to all men so people will adore him. And this is why Christianity was such a threat to Herod. Because Herod is no longer the ultimate king. There's a new sovereign in town. This church, this, this thing full of little Jesuses, those of the party of Jesus, would threaten his sense of value. It threatened his glory. It threatened his sovereignty. He's actually right where Adam was in the garden in Genesis 3, saying, I'm not God and I don't like it one bit. So he does what would be normal to him, and he takes the head off of James. He beheaded him. And it worked. He got a lot of likes. He got a lot of follows out of that. Spoiler alert, his brother will not be killed in this moment. Neither will Peter. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But James is the very first apostle to die. Not the first martyr in the church, but the first apostle to be put down. And he's still a young man. I mean, think about this. He's a young man. His mom lost a son. His brother lost a friend. The church lost a champion in this moment. All so this one guy could get more popular. And this is where modern readers want to read something like this and ask the question, why didn't God just do it this way? Why doesn't God do this instead? Or this? Or these three things? Why doesn't God do something a little bit different than that? Why does he have to die? It doesn't make any sense, and that's a fair question. I mean, if if we want to study the Bible, honestly, that is a fair question. It seems logical that good things happen to good people and villains get what's coming to them. That's what makes sense, right? And whenever we see bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people, that thing that we bristle against is God's sovereignty. It's his supremacy, his will, his plan, his strategy, what he carries forward. That's what we're struggling with. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit, but let's look at verse 4. It says, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers 
bound with two chains and sentries before the door and were guarding the prison. Okay, just real quickly, what he's doing is, is he's trying to get even more popular. If killing James is going to get him a bump in the polls, killing Peter's going to do even more because Peter is a highly visible person in the church. He's going to kill Peter. He's not putting him in prison just to put someone in prison. He's going to do the exact same thing he did to James. All right? Verse 7. Jump back in. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, this is going to burn Herod up a little bit the control freak that he is, because this is going to be embarrassing to him. Peter, Peter's a fisherman, right? He's not Jason Bourne. He's not picking his own locks and knocking guards out. He's just a normal guy, and he escaped once again. So this is a pretty big deal. Now, I've preached this passage no less than a dozen times in my life in different crowds with different groups at different times because of this escape right here. This, to me, and it's not what we're going to go over today, but this is the perfect picture. It's the best picture I could find of what a rested soul looks like, what a soul at peace looks like. Peter is sleeping here because he had, in some ways, already died. He had already died. I mean, what can a sword do when death has lost all of its bitter sting? Peter knew he was going to die the next day. That's why he's surprised when the angel shows up. I think he got into the place where he resolved that this wasn't his home. He'd played his part, and soon he will join James. That's fine enough for him, fine enough for him to get a good night's sleep on his last night on earth. The kind of peace that would cause him to sleep, not lightly, but deeply, that's, that's a miraculous piece. That's otherworldly. That's the real miracle here. Not that he got out of jail. It's the fact that he was even sleeping. And again, this is a different sermon. But I bring it up here for some of you because I've heard no less than maybe seven or eight, nine times this week people that I love, a lot of them in this church, that are struggling with sleep or they're struggling with a rested soul, or they're being harangued by different anxieties, some for big reasons, some for small reasons, and they just can't settle down. And I think this is a beautiful passage for us because it just reminds us that we're untouchable. <laughs> Literally. Death has no heat. We cannot be burned. We have, just, we have the same Holy Spirit that Peter does. I learn a lot from this. But I'm going to get back to the passage today because that is a sermon, but it's a different one. I don't want you to be fooled in this moment to think that God was victorious with Peter and not with James. It would be easy to see that. James dies. Peter is not going to die. It's true. James died. Peter lives about another 20-ish years. John lives a lot longer than that to a ripe old age. 
But this is no situation where God is partly in control. God is completely in control, right? There's no situation where God is locking antlers with Herod and they're just kind of fighting back and forth. That's not how it works. God doesn't wrestle with the rulers of men, whether it's Pharaoh or Herod or anyone, because God himself is sovereign. The same God that handcrafted our coastlines and located the constellations where they need to go designed it. Listen to me. He designed it that James would die as a young man and Peter would not. That's part of his architecture. God commands time, weather, the hearts of kings, and the number of your days because he's sovereign. And again, just to hear that and see it through the passage like this, it provokes the question, why doesn't God, I mean, we, we struggle with this. Why doesn't God do things differently? Why, does it, why did he let this happen in my life? Why didn't he do this instead? Or these other 83 things, it would have been much better than what happened if God is so sovereign. You see, our trust in the sovereignty of God is tested only whenever we see things that we would do differently. That's the part of us that wishes that we would be sovereign instead. It's the Adam in us that does that. If I was God, I would have done it differently. If I was in charge, if I had dominion, if I was supreme, if I was sovereign, I would do things totally different. Listen, if, if God did do things differently, we might feel better about it in the moment, but ultimately, it would be far inferior to what God would have done in his own plan, in his own will. God's plot line holds the deepest good for mankind and the deepest glory, and those are in the same place. God's deepest glory is found in our deepest good. His plot line makes sure that's going to happen. The brokenness that God oversees, and he does oversee it, the brokenness that he oversees will be made beautiful one day. The more broken now, the more beautiful then. Okay? You see, our broken bodies, our broken relationships, our broken economies, they're all going to be fixed one day when paradise is regained. They will be fixed and they will be more beautiful because of how broken they were underneath the weight of sin. No, we don't always understand how to make sense of any of this. And that is the very reason that trust is valuable. That's the reason that trust holds any value, to be honest with you. Trust is cheap if we're just agreeing with God in every moment. If God does things that we enjoy and that we're all on board with, then it doesn't really require that much trust. It's just consensus at that point. But the truth is, is some people die too soon, and honestly, some people live too long. Some people have a hard life, and they're saints. Some people are villains, and they've got it easy. And only God knows why all of this is true. And it beckons trust from us. Trust. He does not answer all of our questions. But he answers the ones that matter. The big question is, is, is he kind in his sovereignty? Is he kind? Is he trustworthy in his sovereignty? I'm going to say that the empty tomb answers that question for us and gives us a resounding yes. Because think about the resurrection of Jesus as he bursts forth from a tomb. Jesus is made beautiful, and he is more beautiful because of how ugly his destruction was. Right? He wasn't just a guy in a tomb. 
We imagine him to be Jesus as we would recognize from a painting in a tomb. He was damaged beyond recognition. He was unrecognizable. We almost killed him before we killed him because of all of the shame and the mockery and the torture that he went through. The distance between Jesus' destruction and Jesus' vibrant life is big. It's a big difference. Our sovereign God is trustworthy. He has proven it repeatedly, whether he's parting a sea or he's emptying a tomb, we can trust him. And I understand that this is a bitter pill to swallow for a lot of people. Some of us, even today, find ourselves being pressed in by the sharp edges of a broken world. We feel it every day. And the thought that God could have changed it and he did not, it makes us bitter, makes us angry, makes us sad. If this is you, you're not alone and there's nothing weird about you or wrong with you. That's a normal thing to feel. But let me just position this before you. If you and I, if you just maybe make the case that God is kind and he is trustworthy, if you and I were maybe walking along and we saw Jesus being carted off, he's carrying his cross, he's being pushed to the hill where he will be sacrificed, murdered, the hill of criminals outside the city. If we were to watch that and not know the rest of the gospel story, we would want to save him. We would want to push the guards out of the way and grab him, kidnap him, and rush him off, hide him somewhere, nurse his wounds, get him back up to speed. We would want to save him because what he's about to go through is so ugly and he's so beautiful and he's so perfect. And yet, God's plan reverses Genesis 3 thoroughly. God shows us he is trustworthy because there will be an empty tomb. He is trustworthy. Is he sovereign? Yes. Is he kind? Yeah. So is he trustworthy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go back to the text. I want you to look at verse 12. And it says, when he realized this, realizing that Peter's long gone, he went to the house of Mary, or no, this is Peter realizing that the angel had left him. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, are you out of your mind? But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over who had become of, or what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Okay, real quickly, just to get it out of the way, I could find no scholars that will comment very deeply on this phrase, it is his angel. <laughs> Some would say it was, they, they, they speculated it might have been his guardian angel, right? That's probably a different sermon. Some of them said that it was his spirit. Maybe he was killed in prison and his spirit shows up. 
agreeably, their theology is not on point. It's a young church, right? We were all like that. I think, if anything, this shows us the humanity of the Bible because you also have this comedic moment with Rhoda at the door, whatever that's about. She just leaves him and runs back inside and runs back out. It's almost like Yakety Sax is playing in the background, like a Benny Hill skit, and everyone's running around with question marks and their arms up in their hands. I think it's just a moment where we can look and say, that's probably the way it would go if this were to happen today. And the fact that Luke would include it, I think, is very endearing. I think it's very helpful for us. But Peter lost a moment here. Peter had an opportunity, and he blew it. He could have just kicked the door open and said, fellas, I made it. I broke out of jail. The tomb couldn't hold Jesus, and a prison can't hold me because I'm Peter. Aren't you glad I'm in charge? Someone get me a beer. The rest of you sing happy birthday to me, right? He had this moment where he could be adored, visible, and valuable. He could have seized the moment, but he didn't do it. Bragging would have been nonsense to him. He understands what we all just read. He was passive in that whole thing. He didn't do anything but get dressed. Go back and read. He didn't even wake himself up. He had to be roused awake. He gets up and he watches the chains fall off. He, he is led through gate number one, past centuries, past gate number two, out of the city. He, is just being, he, he even thought he was dreaming for a good chunk of it. He didn't do anything. Didn't do anything. He shows up and he says, the Lord did this. He took care of me. There's a deep humility here. And it's even more humble given what we're about to read, right? So this is going to stand in contrast with the next four verses. So look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Those are coastal cities. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Okay. Josephus writes on this quite a bit. Josephus, by the way, is a Jewish historian. He's not a biblical writer. He was just alive around the same time, and he wrote quite a bit about a lot of the things that we find in the Bible, this moment being one of them. He wrote extensively on this Herod dropping dead. And he kind of recounts that Herod was sideways with these coastal people. For some reason, not truly mentioned, but they needed him because he's kind of the breadbasket for that whole region. So in order to make things amicable again, they appointed this time where they could celebrate Herod. That's about as basic as it is. But what he's going to do is he's going to use this moment as a giant selfie stick to capture his glory. This is his red carpet moment right now, Herod's. According to Josephus, he wore some sort of cloth. I couldn't figure out where or what kind of cloth, but it shimmered in the sun. And according to Josephus, he would stand in front of the window to that area so that the morning sun would, cut, would, would come up and capture that robe and kind of light the place up a little bit, make him look more impressive and ethereal. That's, that's what's going. So all, all, all 55 cameras are broadcasting him right now. And he probably, his soul probably loved hearing the voice of a god 
a God speaks to us. This guy's not a man. He's a God. And it says that he took glory upon himself and he did so gladly. And then God's patience just runs its course. Herod drops dead because there is only one sovereign God. Now, Josephus will actually write that this wasn't an immediate death, but it was days after that he died. But when modern physicians look at this, uh, they, they are speculating that there's a possible like a bolus of worms in his intestines that made things very painful for him those last few days. So he didn't die immediately, but it was from worms to the best of anyone's ability to understand. But the plot, which is very easy to understand, is very simple. Herod puts James down pretending to be sovereign. God, who is sovereign, puts Herod down. It's easy. You see, God is still in the business, by the way, of installing and deposing rulers according to his will. Why? Because he's sovereign. He still does this. There's no version of history where people gain control against God's plan, against his structured will, against his architecture. It doesn't happen. He historically has used and will use nations and rulers for his purpose. You'll you'll hear about it in the Old Testament. This nation is my rod, the rod of his vengeance. This nation is equipped to come alongside and help this other nation. We actually see it in Proverbs 21. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Paul tells the Roman church, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Listen, let this be a comfort to a church today. Let this be a comfort to a church that is threatened and mocked. The world can throw as many Molotov cocktails as it wants, shoot as many TikTok rants as it feels like, It could pass legislation. It's all boringly predictable. None of it's new. And God is not threatened. In fact, he says his opinion of this in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What are they saying? Nothing more than what Adam said. I'm not God and I don't like it one bit. I want to be my own God. That's what the kings of the earth are saying. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There's a 21st century lesson for this. We make horrible sovereigns. We make horrible gods. We we might not put on a shimmery robe and stand in front of the window. Feel free to do that if you want. We don't do that in order to feel godlike, in order to be visible and valuable, but we'll take 38 pictures of ourselves and our family, slap a filter on it, and wait for emojis to roll in because we want to be valuable and visible. It's just a Herod in us. It's the Herod in us that wants to do that. We might not behead a pastor to maintain some sort of control over a kingdom, but we will behead a baby to maintain control over our bodies. It's the Herod in us, all the way back to Adam. It's this climb towards sovereignty to be our own gods. There is a Herod in each of us all the way back to the garden, the piece of us that says, I am not God and I don't like it. We want so badly to be supreme rulers. I mean, the current cry of our generation is definitely, you cannot tell me how to live my life. Hands off. Hands off my life. You can't tell me how to live my life. That is our generation's cry only because it's been every generation's cry. 
since the beginning of time. Nothing new under the sun. This has all been played out before. I say that because we watch the news and we think, wow, it's getting bad out there. How much more evil can it get? Right? That's an old question. As long as we have pride in us, as long as we reach for godhood, as long as there's evil, as long as we invent new ways of committing evil, we will be asking that question. We're still grabbing fruit in the garden, still being seduced by the voice of the dragon, still looking to be God ourselves. The only thing that fixes Genesis 3 is a bloody cross that held a sovereign in an empty tomb that couldn't. It's the only thing that fixes it, all according to God's sovereign, beautiful, kind plan. Ever since glory was lost in the garden, we've tried to restore it. We've tried. We've tried everything, haven't we? The soul wants this soul-level commendation, this declaration in the, the world's court of opinion that we are valuable and we are visible. So we look for red carpets everywhere because we have this thirst to be visible and valuable. We just can't get it quenched. But there's good news for us, for the exhausted. There's good news, and that's that we're only going to be satisfied when we find our ultimate value and being visible and valuable to God, not our peers. That's where we find comfort. See, Jesus knows how exhausting it is to fight for value. So he comes and he gives us his value. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He makes us family. He adopts us. He enriches us. He sort of wakes us up in our prisons, breaks our chains off, and leads us past gate after gate as we follow him and he leads us home. Let me just say this to you. If you are in Christ, God sees you. Oh, you're visible. And you're valuable. Valuable enough for him to come and live and die and live again. You're valuable. A cross declares this. A tomb reinforces it. This is the gospel that saves us, and it's the gospel that sustains us. We believe as a church that the gospel is not just good enough just to get us saved, and then it just becomes a relic sustains us. This truth, this free good news, it enlivens us. It does save us. Well, listen, if you're here and you don't love Jesus, I don't know what your journey is. I don't know what you would call your journey, what words you would apply to it. If you're watching and you're still trying to figure this whole thing out, but if we could just say, if you do not love Jesus, we can make it as simple as that. It's good for you to know that there is one sovereign, one sovereign God, and he is kind. And he is kind, and he is glorious. And your deepest satisfaction is going to be found only in reflecting his glory, not finding your own, not finding your own. It's exhausting, isn't it, to compete with God for glory? Fairly useless, too. You were created to enjoy the value and the visibility you have because of Jesus, and there is freedom in that. But if you're far from God, listen to me, you have, you have to submit your own sovereignty you have to give up your supremacy and cling to the Lord's. For the rest of us, there is a sustaining power of this same gospel as well. And let me just say one simple application besides some of the more obvious ones. is, Friends, listen, there's a way to be celebrated where God is also celebrated. There's a way to be praised 
and also God be praised at the same time. We, we do things, in fact, to be applauded. We do some admirable things, and it should be celebrated. I mean, just, just this morning is a really good example, right? That big, giant truck out there is here pretty much because Charlie and Rebecca and our staff just ran with it. I did nothing, right? They did it all. They should get the high fives. That's admirable what they did to put that together. The people that were up here on stage earlier, and they'll be up here a little bit later, man, they've been up here forever this morning, setting up things, plugging in things. The screen didn't, I mean, we didn't find it like that. Somebody did that, right? Everything we do, all the way down to the people that are watching your kids right now, that is admirable. It's praiseworthy. We could say that. When we do something admirable, it's beautiful because it's a reflection of what Christ has done in us. So therefore, it's a little odd and awkward sometimes, right? When praise comes to somebody and we kind of make the other person feel uncomfortable by how we receive that, we, we'll say things like, hey, don't look at me, man. God did all of this. I know, hey, I know, yeah, God did it all. I didn't do anything. God did it all. Well, I mean, but if God did it all, it probably would have been a little better, right? When you think about it, you did do something. You contributed to the whole picture, and it's okay to celebrate that. Say something less cringy. <laughs> like, I'm glad it was helpful for you. It was helpful for me too. God is kind. He's good. All right? You see, the church should be the best at eulogizing people. I think we use that word as something that we do when people have died. All right? We wait for people to die before we tell the room what we really think about them and how they helped us and how we grew because of them. We should eulogize the living and we should be the best in the world at it. I mean, let me just tell you, walk up to somebody far from Christ, close to, I don't even care, and just say, hey, you know what I love about you? And then tell them how they show you Jesus a little bit more clearly. A characteristic, an application of God, some sort of a, a mark in their life that has shown you the person of Jesus clearly and just eulogize them. Show them. But they don't get top billing. I say top billing is something that some of you already know about. Top billing, so how do I explain it? So back, back before we put all the credits to a movie um, at the end, we, we, the credits used to be in the beginning of a movie, right? So if you watch an older movie before maybe the 70s or the 80s, you'll see all the credits beforehand, or most of them anyway, and then they roll the rest of them afterward. We wanted a quicker start to our movies, so that's why all of them are afterward right now, right? But the goal, if you were an actor or an actress, is to have your name first above the title of the movie. The first is the top billing, or, and that's why you hear that phrase a lot, top billing. That person has top billing, or above the title billing. And it's interesting, if you look at the history of Hollywood, how petty it could get to get that spot, man. Man, it is a knife fight to get that top billing sometimes. Or which of the top three top names you got? Did you get the second or the third? I mean, it's just crazy how petty it could get. But do you hunger to have your name above the title or below the title? Herod couldn't stand to live a day without having a top billing in his life, without being glorious and sovereign and supreme. Peter was fine not even being listed. Big question, where are you most upside down right now for not being visible and valuable? Where are you most sideways for not being sovereign in your life? Where is that true? Where does your heart demand this top billing? Because here's a warning, Herod didn't start off this way. He was just a kid, just like you were a kid. He grew, he saw it modeled. I'm sure the applause started at some point. 
and just kept going until he couldn't live without it. There is a better way. There's a better way. That's to submit to a trustworthy sovereign who is in control and he is kind. He's proven it. He's proven it. 